Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. In the last episode, we examined the background to Arden's first group, the political nationalists, up to the point that its chief actor, Charles Stuart Parnell, died. In this episode, we're going to examine the extremist end of Irish nationalism, the Republicans. It is a story we touched on a little bit in the last episode without revealing too much information or forcing you to confront too many figures of the Republican movement, since I was trying to keep us focused last time on political nationalists like Parnell and the issues he fought for at Westminster, as well as the insane number of leagues and organisations that his movement spawned. Hopefully you're still with us after the last episode. It was an important one for demonstrating to you a fact of Irish history that is often forgotten today. The truth that Irish nationalists were far more effective getting what they wanted through political means rather than by force. I hope you keep this lesson in mind as we look at men and organisations in this episode who professed similar goals, but who went about those goals with entirely different ends. We have a lot of content to cover today, so let's get into it. Welcome to the mini-series. When Diplomacy Fails presents 1916 A special centenary miniseries exploring the context, characters and controversies of the most significant act in Ireland's modern history. The 1916 Rising Yet the very crown and constitution are in danger. May God be between us and harm. And what is strangest than all, it seems to be from the Irish that you fear this danger most, the people whom you have been nourishing, cherishing and spoon-feeding by means of so many kind and well-paid British nurses for two years, on whom you have lavished so many tons of printed paper, so many millions of cooked rations, these are the people who plot treason and eagerly flock to hear open and advised speaking, eagerly devour published, printed and written language all urging them to arm for the overthrow of British rule in Ireland? 
It is a bad world. Irish nationalist and repeal activist John Mitchell, in a satirical open letter to British Prime Minister Lord Russell, 18th of April, 1848. I do not think that the Fenian conspiracy was at all more active at the present moment than it had been at any time during the last eight or nine years, and I am disposed to believe that the government were acting under the influence of some panic originated by some false or erroneous information. There were, I am aware, a great number of reports and rumours of various kinds flying about with regard to the intentions of the Fenian Brotherhood in America and also in Ireland. I have been told that the government had received information as to an intended movement by the Fenians in Ireland or in this country, but knowing as I did something of what was going on in England and Ireland among my fellow countrymen, and of their feelings and sentiments, I am utterly at a loss to understand the reason why panic should have overtaken the possession of the government. Irish MP Charles Stuart Parnell, speaking in the House of Commons, 22nd of February 1881. What right, therefore, had they to attach the name of rebel to the Fenian Brotherhood? They would be rebels themselves, according to their own showing, if they were subjected to one-twentieth part of the grievous wrongs, injuries, and oppressions which the Catholic and Nationalist people of Ireland had had to endure for generation after generation. These men are my countrymen, who, with a feeling of wrong and injury in their hearts, seeing no other chance of obtaining justice for their country and finding constitutional action vain and useless, took the wild and the foolish idea into their heads of rising in arms against the power of England and making a struggle for Irish liberty, whether they won or whether they lost. Irish MP Timothy Sullivan, speaking at a House of Commons debate, 3rd of September 1886. In my opinion, three different types of Ireland existed before the 1916 Rising. First, there was the political nationalist type of Ireland. We can consider this the default form of Irish politics, since the vast majority of Irish politicians held either home rule or increased Irish sovereignty as their aim when they sat in Westminster. The second type of Ireland was the unionist bloc of Irish politician. This referred to Irish politicians, normally from Northern Ireland or Ulster as it was then called, who considered themselves largely British and normally came from British ancestors or stock. They wished to uphold Irish links to Britain and wished to maintain the strong Protestant culture and identity distinct from the Catholic majority of the island, which they had inherited from their ancestors. The third type of Ireland was the extremist. This included the republican elements of Irish nationalism, which wished to see Ireland break free from British influence and domination by military means through a violent struggle, but it also contained elements of lesser importance at this stage on the Unionist side, which would become dramatically more important in the years before the First World War. These individuals we can term loyalist, and they were distinguished by their favouring of the British link to an almost zealous degree. Such beliefs were normally accompanied by a hatred of things that were Irish, as well as a suspicion of things that were Catholic. These three groups, nationalist, unionist and extremist, are all critically important to the Irish story before 1916. It is because of the individuals that acted so notably in all three categories that Ireland is the way it is today. 
we need to start with an important reminder yet again. We need to talk about the Fenians, because in this episode they are essentially our main protagonists. To set us up for the episode, I'm going to quote from Tom Garvin's article entitled The Anatomy of a Nationalist Revolution, wherein the writer notes, The fall of Parnell and the ruin of constitutional nationalism that followed brought a certain revival of republicanism, but it appears to have been a rather artificial affair, and republicanism found it hard to deck itself in the garments of linguistic revivalism and sport. In itself, it had relatively little appeal. However, the general European crisis of the early 20th century gave the old Fenian organisations a marvellous opportunity. At length, in 1914, the war which the Fenians had long prayed for finally came, The ensuing Irish Revolution was engineered by a conspiratorial minority within a much broader and more moderate tradition, and the ideas behind that revolution were two generations old. Three things are immediately striking to me about this extract. First, the fall of Parnell and the confusing splitting of his party and colleagues into two divided camps is alluded to, an event which we investigated in the last episode. This event was significant because it left a kind of power vacuum in Irish politics. In the past, the Irish party led by Parnell would have been there to satisfy the Irish people's nationalist desires. But with that party splintered and its systems in turmoil for the next decade or so until it reunited, the average Irish person would have had less of a chance to identify with Ireland's political situation and may have sought satisfaction elsewhere. Second, the critical point is made that Republican Fenians, by their very nature, participated within a fringe movement at the edge of Irish society, which did not possess the support of the majority, as Irish political participation in British politics did enjoy this support. This fact is especially significant when you consider, as Garvin goes on to, that this fringe movement in Irish society would go on to define Irish history and the island's future while the political movements which had for so long led and defined it would be left in the dust of Ireland's past. Third and finally, it is worth highlighting the point that Garvin made at the end of this extract when he stated that the ideas behind the revolution of 1916 were two generations old. This proves the cliché we've encountered many times before that in order to get to the heart of a story, you have to go back to its beginning. Going to the very beginning of Irish history isn't something we're equipped for, but we can certainly trace the events of 1916 back to the foundations of movements which we met for the first time in the last episode, and which you should prepare yourself to hear a lot more from here on in. The Irish Republican Brotherhood Republican is a term I have used a number of times already, and though you may be familiar with the term, it is important to clarify what we mean when we say it for the sake of all of us being on the same page. Republicanism can, in fact, mean a number of things, which is not that handy, but it normally refers to a belief that said country should be a republic. As you may expect, to state one's stance as a republican is common practice not for the sake of expressing one's desires with the ideal type of governmental system, but instead for expressing disfavour with the current type of governmental system. Let me explain what that long-winded sentence means. Current republicans in the United Kingdom, for example, do not wave flags and hold meetings that claim Britain should be a republic because they like the idea of it being one, though of course that is part of it. 
These people want a republic because they want the constitutional monarchy to be done away with. Similarly, Irish Republicans professed a desire to change Ireland's status from a constituent member of the kingdom to an independent republic. They did not want devolved government, in other words, but complete separation from London's interfering hand. They wanted a president, not a king, and they elected one to serve as their leader on both sides of the Atlantic. The end goal for Irish Fenians was to establish a republic by violent means if necessary, and throw off the British yoke. The end goal of the American Fenians was to facilitate and aid this crusade wherever possible, through moral or monetary support. As far as defined goals go, we cannot get much clearer than that. The Irish Republican Brotherhood, or IRB as we're going to call them from here on in, was a product of the Fenians. The Fenians themselves were a product of disgruntled Irishmen travelling to the United States and establishing extremist organisations in their new homeland. The emigrating Irish that left Ireland for pastures new in America in the early 1850s and 40s did so at a time of great depression and suffering in Ireland. The late 1840s and early 50s were a time of famine and loss and suffering, an event known as the Great Famine, Great Potato Famine, Great Hunger and countless other awful names that rocked the island to its core, and saw the death of at least one million Irish from starvation, disease or related effects that came from such a disaster. A further million, not content to wait on London for provision, virtually fled the country in overcrowded, unhygienic and often dangerous vessels to reach the New World in America, generally on its east coast. The deeply ingrained trauma from this event cannot be underestimated on Irish history. As I said, a total of two million individuals, some saying as much as two and a half, were absent by 1855. In 1845, Ireland had been one of the fastest growing countries in the world in terms of population, but now that had all been changed forever. Ireland has still not reached the population today that it had achieved in 1845. Roughly 6.3 million people live on the island of Ireland today, a figure which includes the population of the Republic of Ireland in the south and Northern Ireland in the north, whereas the equivalent of this figure was pushing nearly 8.5 million before the famine struck, and it had shown no signs of slowing down. The significance of the famine thus established, it should come as little surprise to learn that many of the Irish that fled their homeland felt uncompromisingly bitter over how the British had reacted to the situation. Some, free from London's writ in their new homeland, began to develop and cultivate ideologies that held at their core the premise that Britain should never be trusted to look after Ireland again, and that to ensure the welfare of Irish men and women, Ireland must be free. These ideas were by no means new. Irish people had travelled throughout the world and settled in pastures new since the age of exploration. It was remarkably easy to feel a sense of attachment and nostalgia for one's homeland when you had travelled far from it, and this, coupled with being removed from the actual difficulties or realities on the ground, could lead individuals to create plans and groupings based on the concept that Ireland should, and above all could, be freed from British rule by military means. 
the founding members of the scattered Irish nationalist expatriate organisations across the United States were certainly more radicalised by the fact that they could plot and imagine without having to see and feel what Ireland was really like in the 1850s. Depressed, weak, exhausted and above all poor, and this definitely contributed to their extremist rhetoric and determination to act. The famine experience shaped the outlook of men like James Stevens, born in Kilkenny and destined to have a profound impact on Irish republicanism and nationhood. Stevens was born and grew up in an atmosphere of tense, but also complicated, debates on Ireland's situation within the British Empire. Political movements had spawned a number of Irish organisations, such as the Repeal Association, a grouping of Irish giant Daniel O'Connell's design, which agitated for an end to the Act of Union which bound Ireland to Britain. In this charged atmosphere, a spin-off group calling themselves Young Ireland emerged, with James Stevens among its prominent members. As the Young Irelanders watched the situation at home worsen, the impression was that London seemed content to watch their neighbour burn on a pyre of misery and starvation, rather than intervene. Inspired by events taking place in Europe, and by Britain's lousy record of rule, a faction of the Young Irelanders determined to launch a revolt of their own in 1848. In comparison to the 1916 Rising, the 1848 Act had a number of interesting parallels, but paradoxically it was also strikingly different. James Stevens participated within it as one of the revolt's notables, and he was beside William Smith O'Brien, a ringleader of the event, when the uprising began. O'Brien essentially travelled throughout the country of Ireland in 1848, proclaiming a revolution, and when police came to arrest him, his supporters forced the police regiment to barricade themselves into a farmhouse. Up to this point, no shots had been fired, and the bloodless revolution that O'Brien and his supporters in the Young Ireland movement had imagined seemed at hand. The scene which greets historians in this climax of the rebellion is in direct contradiction to that of 1916. O'Brien negotiated with the police regiment that had barricaded themselves in the farmhouse and even shook some of their hands as Irishmen through the windows of the farmhouse. But when a shot was fired and the scene took a turn for the worst, chaos soon ensued. Two men were killed in the shooting that followed as the police regiment seemed to set itself up for a siege. Yet O'Brien recognised from an early stage that the policemen's positions were impregnable in the old farmhouse, and after having been escorted to safety by James Stevens and others, he reasoned that the young Irelanders and their supporters would have to flee the scene. There was to be no bloodbath or pointless sacrifice. With the police regiment due to be reinforced, O'Brien, Stevens and others recognised that the situation was hopeless, and they fled the scene to avoid capture. When all had calmed down at this previously unassuming farmhouse, it could be stated, without too much hyperbole, that the Young Ireland Revolution had come to an end. The total casualties stood at two. Irish people had been roused by O'Brien's procession throughout the country as he had proclaimed an Irish Revolution, but they had also been mightily confused and did largely nothing about it. When you Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? 
helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact... You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This was learned of the farmhouse incident and that O'Brien and his colleagues had fled, the enthusiasm behind the Young Ireland cause mostly evaporated. O'Brien and others were arrested and sentenced to death, only to have their sentences commuted to imprisonment in Van Diemen's Land's penal colony in modern-day Tasmania. James Stevens, as well as a few of his allies, fled to France, where the Second Empire under Napoleon III was thought to promise great things for the future of liberty and freedom. Stevens made his money over the following decade through lecturing and teaching and translation work, plotting all the while the next stage of the fight to overthrow British rule in Ireland. In early 1858 he returned to Ireland, inspired by messages he'd received from his colleagues there and in the United States. In the United States, the Fenian Brotherhood had already been established by some of the comrades of the 1848 revolt, who had since established themselves and founded new lives in America. Stevens copied their example. On St. Patrick's Day 1858, he founded the Irish counterpart to the American Fenians, the Irish Republican Brotherhood, following a lengthy speaking and organisation tour throughout the country. After this breathtaking survey, you might be wondering what this has to do with 1916. Well, history friends, here's the thing. Although the IRB enjoyed its share of successes and failures over the coming years, although it enjoyed support from Irish expats in the UK as well as in the armed forces, it endured, somehow, up to the 1916 Rising. On the eve of that event, men and women acted as agents of the IRB, the same IRB which was created on Patrick's Day 1858 by James Stevens. In a remarkable bout of political endurance, especially considering how many other Irish organisations faded into the background over the years, the IRB had adapted to the circumstances and drew on experienced Fenians in the United States and Ireland to endure. It reinvented itself a number of times, and as we'll see, didn't even actually get credit for the 1916 Rising when that Rising happened. In stark and significant contrast to the goals and ends professed by William Smith O'Brien and the Young Ireland Movement, though, 
James Stevens did not abhor violence when it was used to bring about Ireland's freedom. To him, the ends of Irish freedom justified the means of violence, a mantra embraced by those that prepared to resist to the end when they launched their own revolt on the 24th of April, 1916. The cult of violence, or the romanticising of it, are themes of Irish history that historians have grappled with for generations. How do we explain the wellspring of ideology and rhetoric that seems to extol the ultimate sacrifice for the sake of the nation? How do we reconcile such extremist thoughts with the comparative moderation of Ireland's other political movements? A great myth of Irish history began to be born in the mid-19th century and this was largely due to the work of men like James Stevens and John Devoy, who insisted that a venerable pantheon of Irish martyrs had fought against Britain throughout the years, and that they had given their lives for Ireland. The idea that the current generation must follow in their footsteps, must not let their memory or legacy down, must not be perceived as weak, was a common one that persisted right up to the memoirs and writings of the men that died in 1916. For the participants of 1916, in particular those that died, there was a genuine need to participate in such an act of violence to cleanse the shame of Irish collaboration with Britain in the past, and to prove that the Irish could measure up to the actions of their ancestors. Sean Kinsella's 1994 article, The Cult of Violence and the Revolutionary Tradition in Ireland, is one of many that examine republicanism's cult of violence but I feel Kinsella's stands out because of the concise definition he gives for that cult's importance for the likes of the Fenians, and how it was moulded to suit their organisations. Kinsella noted, Several points regarding the revolutionary tradition and its regard for violence are worth noting. The first is that the historic relevance of any act of violence for the time is insignificant. What matters is its place in the passage of history over time. The act or the date or the name is not as important as its place in the litany of Irish tradition. Second, the factual reality, the material circumstance, is not the most important consideration when examining a particular action. The real importance lies in placing the individual act in the context of tradition. It is the mythic Ireland that determines the act and it is within that context that historical acts acquire their significance and validation. Kinsella's analysis here is important because it ties into the strange world that the Fenians operated in. The creation of a pantheon of heroes to sing about or venerate was not a purely Republican Irish desire. The Romans did it, the Greeks did it, and of course the British did it. Typically, ideologies such as these come from organisations that operate within secrecy and against the law. A good comparison we'll come back to was Serbia's black hand that assassinated Franz Ferdinand. To those Serbians, dying for one's nation was not an event to be feared, just as surely as violence against one's national enemies could only be a cause for celebration in song. When Serbian soldiers sought inspiration, they looked to their past as a glorious Slav kingdom in the Middle Ages, before the Ottomans and before Austria. Similarly in Ireland, the past was venerated, in a kind of Celtic romanticism, and in the case of both, one's violence acts were vindicated if the nation's proud history was invoked. It is a curious thing I understand, but I hope you'll feel as though you understand a bit better what it means to be a Fenian now.
Soon after helping to create the IRB, Stevens went abroad to the United States to seek financial and moral support from the American Fenians already resident there. Here he would remain for much of his time with the IRB. Throughout the 1860s he was drawn closer to figures from America's Fenian Brotherhood, and was in a position by the middle of the 60s to pool resources and ensure cooperation between the two strands of Fenianism across the Atlantic. Stevens was also greatly helped in these efforts to amalgamate both arms of the Fenians more effectively by dedicated agents on the ground in Ireland as well as within Britain, who ensured a steady stream of money and ill-gotten arms would be at the IRB's disposal. One of these smugglers was Michael Davitt, a man who had joined the IRB in 1865 and who soon caught Stevens' personal attention with his daring raids on British castles and his shady efforts to blend into British society. Davitt struck Stevens as someone whom the IRB could use very effectively, and though Stevens remained in America at this time, he ensured that Davitt was informed of what was needed. Against Stevens's better judgement though, elements within the American Fenians were planning an uprising in Ireland for 1867. To Stevens it was doomed to fail, but as historians we can diagnose their apparently suicidal rationale on the basis that much of America's Fenians had forgotten what it was like to live in Ireland. In America things seemed possible, expansion was everywhere and ambition got you anywhere. It was the land of opportunity. In Ireland, things had gotten worse since the famine, and the practice of subsisting on land which continued to escalate in price meant grave omens for the future of most of Ireland's peasant-like farmers, who constituted a large bulk of the populace. This is where things begin to coincide with what we covered in the last episode, with the eruption of the land war, the intervention by Charles Stuart Parnell, and the creation of numerous leagues to protect the striking farmers who could no longer afford to pay for the land that they lived on. Into this atmosphere the Fenian Brotherhood wished to launch an uprising, and of course it would fail miserably, leading to the closure of notable Irish newspapers which had served as the IRB's organ, and a crackdown by British authorities on nationalist organisations. The Fenians in America hadn't viewed the situation in Ireland as hopeless, but they saw the doomed uprising of 1867 as part of a strategy to worsen the relationship between Ireland and Britain to a crucial point. Much was made in the Fenian hierarchy of the relative unimportance of military success, in comparison to the reverence in which defying British authority was viewed, and this ties into the kind of ideology of the Fenians that we examined earlier. The importance of symbolism to the Fenians even at this early stage was striking, The plan of the 1867 revolt revolved around utilising British army units that had been infiltrated by the IRB in the past, but this was merely one element of the plan. The strategy to seize a portion of a town and hold it long enough with insurgents to provoke a response from a foreign power such as Russia or even the United States was seen by the Fenians as a perfectly viable plan. Most significantly for us was the fact that such a belief in the eventual interference of a foreign power was one inherited from the failed 1798 rebellion, and that it was one which was also passed down by the 1867 rising to the individuals that took part in the 1916 rising, almost 60 years later. The IRB adapted to the 1867 failure by nudging its members towards compromise in politics the results of which we encountered in the last episode with the new departure. 
Just as reform in Ireland was becoming a hot topic and Charles Stuart Parnell was agitating for action, the two pillars of Irish nationalism seemed to be uniting. In this episode, we met James Stevens. Stevens helped to found the Irish Republican Brotherhood, an organisation which would serve as the Irish arm of the Fenian Brotherhood that had been established in the United States. Stevens would inspire and help train a number of prominent Irish men and women in some cases, so it is important we recognise his contribution and appreciate the mark he made on Irish history. It will be his lessons, disseminated through the IRB long after he'd been replaced by others, that the most famous individuals would learn, and they would pass these lessons on to still more famous individuals. It should go without saying that Stevens was not the only founding father of Irish republicanism, or the only important Irish figure of the early to mid-19th century for that matter, but his was a story that was replicated by a number of his colleagues, and for the sake of not bombarding you with too many more names, we are going to use his example going forward. As a man, Stevens experienced the famine and took part in the 1848 Young Ireland Revolt. He then escaped to France, building up his resources and experiences, before moving back to Ireland to establish the IRB. In the subsequent years, Stevens followed the line of many a Republican before him, and anticipated the actions of those that came after him, by moving to the United States in an effort to get the IRB off the ground and pool its resources with American Fenians. His efforts brought the organisations on both sides of the Atlantic together. It meant that they cooperated and planned their next move in unison, and by 1867, as we saw, another failed uprising was the result. Following this failure, the willingness to cooperate with constitutional nationalists in Westminster became more pronounced, with consequences that would catapult men like Parnell to success. From this point, Stevens doesn't quite vanish from our narrative, but he does get replaced by people more important to it. In a way, Stevens' story is representative of a typical Republican, but it is also a great example of how Britain made men like Stevens more radical and willing to turn to violence. Again, I'm not going to get into the famine and its events, since it's honestly too depressing to do and will only fill you with more information, and I'm sure you're reaching the brim at this stage but it should be emphasised that the late 1840s were a watershed period for Ireland. I really can't overstate this enough. They taught some that Britain could never be trusted to stand for Irish affairs and hold the interest of Irish men and Irish women at heart. Some lamented this fact with a barely veiled despair. Others turned to politics with varying degrees of success, and others still turned to extremist organisations with even more varied degrees of success. The 1870s and early 80s were years of cooperation for the Fenians, as many would go on to become more active in politics, with a view towards improving Ireland's lot before the actual island-wide rebellion came. The ideology behind cooperating with the Home Rule League or the likes of Charles Stuart Parnell was based on the premise that, if a war against the British was not feasible at that very moment in time, political means could be used to better the lives of the ordinary Irish citizen before that war broke out. This was a lesson we learned in the last episode. Violence and glorious revolution was preferable, but the Fenians were not so stubborn that they would fail to make use of the chances available to improve Irish lives or bolster their profile in Ireland. The latter ambition was particularly sought after, especially once the land war really heated up in the 1870s 
and the authorities found it increasingly difficult amidst a united Irish response to prosecute any offenders. While on the surface, many prominent Fenians travelled the country promoting the core tenets of the Land League under Parnell, underneath that surface, Fenians promoted their organisation's beliefs and aims to an exhausted but somehow still positive Irish populace. Ironically, this era of cooperation between Ireland's two blocks of nationalist thought an era known as the New Departure, as we also learned last time, was the time when the IRB was most relevant to the average Irish citizen, since the Fenians were often seen protecting farmers or acting as the militant arm of the Land League that could get things done, if Parnell didn't want to get his hands dirty. Another interesting fact about the IRB before we close this episode... The fall of Parnell actually made things harder, not easier, to be a Fenian. Already by the mid-1880s the new departure was slowing, and many Fenians who had jumped ship altogether for constitutional nationalism were denounced as having sold out by the IRB's Supreme Council. Some former Fenians even went as far as becoming politicians themselves, taking the oath of allegiance to uphold the Empire and honour the Queen etc., and representing Ireland in London. Yet the one thing that both extremist republicanism and moderate nationalism had going for it was Parnell. Parnell was the link between the two worlds. He was essential to bridge the gap between individuals and organisations, which would have remained at loggerheads otherwise. Thanks to his reputation earned while travelling and speaking throughout America, American Fenians viewed Parnell as an essential figure, and they played a large part in pushing the IRB to continue to cooperate with the Home Rule League. Many Fenians thought that further gains in politics could be sought if they stood for office and infiltrated the Home Rule League by becoming an MP, thereby contributing to what they believed would be the eventual radicalisation of Parnell's party. Whatever their motives, Parnell was a key ingredient, but when he died in 1891 it threw the IRB into a quandary. Already their forces and numbers had been in decline and their glory days had consisted of serving as muscle for the Land League and ensuring that land reform was passed. Cooperation had brought the IRB great success and notoriety, but it was now clearly a sailed ship. If anything, the years of cooperation had flushed out the moderates and activists from the IRB woodwork, and now the organisation appeared as a tired version of its old self. With an aged leadership council and no real way to combat the clearly increasing gentleness of British rule in the last few years of the 19th century, the IRB seemed almost doomed to failure by the same forces that had doomed every other extremist Irish organisation in Ireland's past. Yet the IRB would not die. Instead it would reinvent itself in an atmosphere of cultural revival, nationalist intrigue and political wrangling. To achieve such a reinvention, the IRB would make use of a new wave of recruits, men who would in time lead the IRB's Supreme Council to the events of 1916. This second wind was greatly aided by a new kind of revival within Ireland, one of culture, of language and of sport, and one which the IRB were determined to infiltrate for the good of their own cause, as we'll see in the next episode. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. 
Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 